welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. In 1973, going back in history here, in 1973, there was a famous bank robbery that happened in a town called Stockholm, Sweden. A guy named, he's got a weird name, he's got two first names, which is not allowed. His name was Jan Eric Olsen, decided that he needed a little extra money after being in prison for a while. And so he broke into a bank and decided, I'm going to rob this place. There was just one problem. While he was good at robbing a bank, he was not good at getting away. He he found himself trapped in the bank as police arrived and swarmed around him with no way for him to escape. Now, what made this bank robbery famous wasn't that they had a standoff for an hour. They had a standoff for six days while he barricaded himself inside the bank with four different hostages. After those six days, the police were able to negotiate the release of the hostages, and they were able to arrest Mr. Olson. Now, what they found, though, was interesting, and this is probably where you've heard of this bank robbery from. As they pulled the hostages out of there, they were so excited, we got you out, you're safe. What they found is that the hostages were actually hostile towards the police. The hostages were mad at the police for trying to free them, claiming that the police had put them in danger and that their captors had protected them. And then they refused to testify against their captors. Uh, this, this is something that we learned about the human mind from this specific time, is that in a high-stress situation, in a time when there is a kidnapping, sometimes the hostages will begin to rely on their captors to am- amount that they develop feelings for them and sometimes even falling in love with them. You may have heard this called Stockholm Syndrome, and it's something that for the first time we understood in the 1970s. There's something about us when, when, when we're in danger that we can, we can fall in love with the wrong thing. And that baffles me that you could be in a bank and a guy busts in there with a gun and he takes you hostage and he won't let you leave for six days and you live without food and the people who are trying to rescue you, you see them as the villain because they put you in danger. But then again, doesn't that define our relationship with sin? Like, like in this world, we see people that, 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 that refuse to be rescued by Jesus Christ. They refuse to come to Christ because they have fallen in love with their sin, with their captor who is there to rob and steal from them. We've been in a series called I Know Jesus, and we're looking at Jesus and who he is through the eyes of his best friend, John. And John teaches us a lot about Jesus in these first few verses. He tells us that Jesus is the essence of life, that Jesus is the power by which the universe was made. He calls him the life and the light. And the point that John is trying to get across is Jesus is not some guy. Jesus is not some guy that we even gather just because we like him and he was a great teacher and he was a nice person. No, no, there was something special about Jesus. And Jesus came into a world, and John is trying to communicate to us that Jesus came into a world that he created. He came into a world to rescue him, and this world that he created rejected him because it had fallen in love with sin instead of the rescuer. And in John 1, 6, John is going to continue his story about Jesus telling us about him. So read with me, if you will, just one verse to start off with. John speaking, he says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to come back to that. Now, John introduces a new character here. Gets six verses in before he says, Oh, and there was John, and I'm John. Right? That seems kind of prideful. Uh, Let's just make sure that we don't have any confusion about the Scripture here. We have two different Johns 
in the Bible, at least two different Johns in the Bible. The first one is the one that we've been talking about, Jesus' best friend, John the Apostle, and he is the one who is writing this. And so when we come to verse 6, we have to ask, is John introducing himself? But if you continue to read the rest of the book of John, the Apostle John never identifies himself by name. He identifies himself by something much more prideful. He always calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. He never talks about himself by name. So when he says the word John, we know he's not talking about him. He's talking about another John, one that you may have heard called John the Baptist. How do we know that John was a Baptist? Seem kind of prideful of us to assume, right? Well, I can tell you with biblical authority that John loved potlucks and always had his services at 11 a.m. That's how we know John was a Baptist. Now, the Bible never calls him John the Baptist. He's never called that in that. It's just what we call him because what he did is he baptized people. If you guys have seen the, uh, the show called The Chosen, I love the way they put it in The Chosen. They call him John the Baptizer, not John the Baptist. But let me tell you about this John. This is important because John the Apostle is identifying John the baptizer to us for a reason. Uh, this second John, this John the baptizer, was famous in Israel. He was known to most of Israel because he was a wild man who lived in the desert. He hid out in the deserts and he was known for doing things like uh, eating locusts and honey. He, he wore like this really itchy, weird thing made out of camel hair. If he had left that camel alive, we could have had it here. And a leather belt. He, he lived in the desert. I'm sure he smelled great and he always shaved. You know when you wake up in the morning and you've got that morning breath and you go look in the mirror and your hair's all a mess? Like that's that's John, except for that's his entire life. And so he was famous in Israel for being a little bit crazy. But secondly, people knew there was something special about John because John was known as a prophet. And what a prophet is, that's just a fancy word from somebody that God sends with a message to his people. And so this John the baptizer, John the Baptist, the second John, came to the world with a message from God. He even dressed like a prophet. The, the dress that he wears is exactly what Elijah would have wore. And he taught like a prophet. I love the audacity of John. This man lives out here with some skin that he found off of a roadkill camel living out in the desert. He doesn't shave. He eats bugs. He preaches. And this man will bust up in the king's court and be like, hey, you're sinning. The king at this time had married his brother's wife. And John busts up in the court like, hey, you, you can't do that. Can you imagine John walking into the presence of a king smelling like that? He lost his life for that. But John was a prophet who looked like a prophet. A lot of people saw him as crazy, but he taught like a prophet. And for these reasons, people knew John. And John was the first prophet, listen to this, Israel who had been used to having men and at times women of God come and bring them messages from God. This is the first time in 400 years, 400 years of silence from God. The first time a prophet bust on the scene in 400 years. That's John. Now, because John was so crazy, he had developed somewhat of a following. And what he taught his following was don't put your faith in the things that people want to put their faith in. Don't, don't put your faith in Judaism and being Judish, Jewish. That's not a good thing. Don't put your faith in how good your works are, how you live compared to the world. Don't put your faith in your family lineage. No, instead, you need to repent of your sin and put your faith in a coming Messiah. Put your faith in something that will actually save you. And in doing this, he would then, after somebody had done this, he would then baptize them. 
Now we're going to camp out right here on Baptized for just a couple of minutes because what is that? Some of you have been in church for at least 103 years and you've got the baptism thing down. You know all about it. Uh, some of you may be new to church and I've heard about baptism and I've seen it but I don't really understand what the point is. And, and some of you may have never ever heard that. So what is the meaning of baptism or to be baptized? Well, to help you with this, to help you understand what this means, we're going to go back to the Greek. Because the actual Greek word here is baptisma. Baptisma. And you see there's not a lot of difference between the two. The word literally means submerge or immerse. This is one of those words in the Bible that we transliterated and didn't translate. Let me explain. Those are big words. Let me explain what the difference in that is. Transliterated is when we take a word from another language and we borrow it and we just assume we understand what it means. Translated is we take a word from another language and we find the English equivalent of it. So baptize was transliterated because we use baptize. If we had it translated it, your Bible would read, and they were submerged, and they were immersed, and they were put under the water. So the equivalent word to this is immersion or sub submersion. Now, when John would preach, he would preach this repentance. Turn, that just means turn away from your sins. Change your mind about sin. Sin is not as good as you think it is. Change your mind about that. And when somebody received that message, there was a symbolic ritual where they would be placed underwater. Now, let me be clear. It was very symbolic as it is today. And they would be placed underwater and it would represent being washed of the dirtiness and the filth of sin. It would represent going under the water and coming back out as a new person after being put under the water and after being change. It was a representation. And today we use it for those same reasons. Well, one, because it's biblically uh, commanded, but it means the same thing today that when we are baptized, when we've come to know Christ, when we are baptized, we identify with Christ death, his burial as we go underwater, and his resurrection as we come back over him. And so baptism for us is just a way of pointing to Jesus, just the same way as it was for John before Jesus died on the cross, pointing forward to the Messiah. It helps us remember who we are. Now, as we sit in here, there's a lot of different backgrounds, and I just want you to know, at Ramsey Heights, we celebrate differences in background. We celebrate differences in how we were raised, and the different lifestyles and different paths that our lives took us on. As long as we're here, and as long as we're learning and growing in God together, we don't care where your road went. I don't care how many people you killed. I don't care how many banks you robbed. I don't care what church you grew up in. We're so thankful that you're here. But there's some, there's some issues with the way baptism is practiced around the world. Uh, some people have assumed that baptism is what saves you, is that if you want to make it to heaven, you better find someone to get you under some water quick. And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible makes it very clear that baptism is for a believer after being saved. And so I talked with, I talked with a guy last summer. He contacted me. I knew some family members of him. And, and he came down. He said, I want to talk to you about our faith. And he came down. And I was surprised when he pulled up. It was him and his wife and like six kids. I don't know where they all came from. Just right out of there. Like the Partridge family or whatever. He was coming right out of there. Just falling out of there like doves and coming in. He comes in and he says, um, you know, this COVID stuff has got me thinking. And, and what I want to do is um, I want you to baptize me and my whole family. And after talking with him a little bit, I realized what he was looking for is he wasn't looking for Jesus. He, somebody somewhere had told him, like, you've got to be put underwater. You've got to be baptized to make it into heaven. And what he was trying to figure out is, can you quickly baptize me so that I can be saved? I, I, I counseled with him for a long time, and, and I made um, the determination. I didn't feel like he was coming for Christ, and I told him, I'm sorry, I, I can't do that. I can't baptize you when you're not here to put your faith in Christ. I can't baptize your kids at your command because baptism is not there to save you. 
In some circles, that's led to um, infant baptism, the sense that if we want to make sure our kids are going to be raised and live and die and go to heaven, we better baptize our children. And so we have baptism of babies. But the Bible does not lay that out either. The Bible says that once you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you embark on the symbolic gesture of following Christ. And I know that in some different denominations, in some different denominations, that, that baptism is used by pouring water over the top of somebody's head. But listen, this is what the Bible teaches us, because every place that you find this in the Bible, it goes in a specific order. Step one, somebody places their faith in Jesus Christ and becomes a Christian and they receive salvation up to them. Step two, they are baptized where they are immersed in water. And step three, they go out and teach. Now listen, do not take my word for that. Do not take my word for that. I am not the authority on this topic. My job is to teach you what the authority on the topic says. And so if, if you hear that and you're like, I don't know about that. I was raised different. What, what I will challenge you to do is prove me wrong. Get in your Bible and go see if I said something wrong there. Get in your Bible and go check out what God said and the way that this was practiced in the early church and what the word baptisma means. I, I would challenge you to check that out because I'm not the, I'm not the guy that you want to listen to. But I'm telling you what's in the Bible as I've looked it out and I've searched it out and I've studied it. Our first take-home truth with this is baptism is how we identify with the Messiah and repentance of sins. Our baptism is how we identify with Jesus Christ and we identify our repentance of sins here. And so when we're talking about John, John has this following of people that have come to him to follow him, to listen to his teaching, to repent of their sins, and to be baptized. And anytime you have a following, you get a reputation. That's just the way of it. When you have a following, when people know your name, you get a reputation, and that reputation may change amongst different people. Some people thought that John was awful special. They, they thought that he was special, that God sent him, as the Bible now tells us. Some people thought he was crazy. Some people, even at this time, thought he was the Messiah. But here's what's important about John in the context of our scripture today. Everybody knew him. And everybody knew there was something about him. They disagreed on what that something was, but everybody knew there was something about him. And John the Apostle, he points to John the Baptizer. And he says, you know John, that guy that everybody knew that you couldn't decide if he was the Messiah or if he was the prophet or if he was crazy, that you couldn't decide who he was? Let me tell you what his purpose was. And he says this about John. He says, he wasn't the light. He was a witness to the light. That John's purpose was to be a witness to the light. Let's camp on that word witness for a second. What, what does witness mean? I think in our world we would think of that as like a trial, wouldn't we? Like we're going to have a trial and we're going to call a witness to the stand. And what does the witness do? The witness tells you from their personal experience what they know. A witness can't tell you what somebody else knows. A witness tells you from their personal experience what they know. And so as John the baptizer is a witness, he's telling us from his personal knowledge, the message sent by God through him to us, he is telling us about who the real light is. He's telling us who we should look for. And John, who spent his whole life talking about the Messiah, the coming Messiah, and the change in the world, identifies Jesus. 
In the Middle Ages, kings would employ a guy named a herald. And a herald was just simply a messenger. What, the, what their job was, was to be a messenger for the king. And so the king would send them, please go deliver this message to this kingdom. And the herald would go when the king moved one of his best duties. The herald would go before the king. And he would go into a city before the king arrived. And he would announce, you guys need to listen. The king is coming. You're going to want to take a bath. Clear these streets so he can get through here. Prepare. He's going to need somewhere to eat. He's going to need a place to talk for you guys to listen to him. You need to get ready for the king. And I find it interesting that Jesus, the king of kings and lord of lords, comes into this world. You know what he has? He has a herald in John the baptizer. A herald that goes out before him and says, listen, the king is coming. You need to be ready for him. This is what he asks of you and this is what he desires. John was uh, special, but here's the question, and I think this is what John the Apostle is getting at about John the Baptizer. If John was special, if his job was special, if he was sent by God, how much more special is the person he is announcing? Because this is what John the Baptizer would tell you about Jesus Christ. He said, yeah, I know everybody thinks I'm a prophet and I'm a special, but, or I'm special, but listen, listen to this. There's somebody coming, and I'm not worthy to untie their shoe. That's how John identified himself in relation to Jesus Christ. And John the Apostle here wants to make sure that as we, as we focus on John, that we know that he is the messenger telling us that Jesus is the king. And John ends that saying that he came to witness the light so that you would believe. Uh, let's continue reading here, verses 7 and 8. Uh, the same came for a witness to bear witness to the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That, uh, that was the true light, which lighteth every man, and cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. John the Apostle tells us, John the baptizer was special, but his only job was to point you towards this Jesus. And he goes on and he talks about Jesus. He says, Jesus came into the world. And last week, John the apostle told us that Jesus created this world. He was the creator. All things were created through him. And Jesus came into this world that he created, a world where nature responds to his commands, a world where his fingerprints are everywhere. And yet the world did not know him. Because while the wind and waves obeyed Jesus, while fig trees would wither when Jesus cursed them, there's one part of creation that has rejected God. There's one part of creation that didn't recognize him and didn't know him. You know what that part of creation is? It's, it's me. It's you. In the entire universe, everything that God created does exactly what he created to do except for us. The moon will always go around the earth. The earth will always go around the sun. Stars will always shine as long as God tells them to. There's only one thing in the entire world that is out of step with God, and it's, it's you and me. And so as God, Jesus comes back into this world, he wasn't recognized by us. And you ask a question, like, how didn't the world recognize him? He created us. He breathed his life into us. How do we not know who Jesus Christ is? How can he come into a world and not be recognized after he made us? It's like this. Imagine this. It's your birthday. Anybody have a birthday today? Oh, that would have been too perfect. It's your birthday today. And you're kind of down in the dumps because nobody's called and nobody's texted. And 
my husband didn't get me flowers, right? You're, you're having one of those days, and you come home, and you open the door, and you flip on the lights, and what you see is everybody that you love and know is in your house, and they've got a giant banner that says, happy birthday, your name, right? And there's balloons everywhere, and there's a giant cake, and you're so excited as you flip on the lights, and you expect them all to yell, surprise, and nobody does. And instead, they kind of look at you disgruntled. You've got to run it. Get in here. We're waiting on Brian. It's his birthday. We're going to surprise him. And you're like, I'm Brian. Get out of the way. And you walk over to your best friend, and you're like, this is weird. Nobody, everybody's just still kind of watching the door. So you walk over to your best friend. like, man, I really appreciate you putting this together. You have no idea how much it means to me. And your best friend's like, do I know you? Be quiet. We're, we're, waiting. we're waiting on Brian to get here. And you walk over to your parents or your spouse or your children. It's like, guys, I'm so happy to see y'all. I've had a rough day. This is just making it weirder. And they're like, leave us alone, right? And so inconsolable, you see the cake, and it's your favorite chocolate cake with chocolate icing. That's my favorite. If you don't like that, I love you, but you're wrong, okay? And you're going over there to that cake, and you just cut yourself a piece, and everybody freaks out. That's not your cake! I don't care if it says, happy birthday, Brian. That's not your cake. And, and they call the police to escort you out of your own birthday party. When Jesus comes into the world, he comes into a world that was created for and by him. He comes into a world that should have celebrated. Everybody looked at him and goes, who are you again? What, what are you doing here? How do we do that? How do we get to a point where we don't recognize Jesus? Where he comes to his own party, to his own world, and we're like, I don't, I don't know you. I'm full of examples this morning. Have, how many of you have ever seen the movie or read the book, The Count of Monte Cristo? We're going to see hands on this one. Anybody? Good. This will go over well. I love the movie, especially the early 2000s version of the movie. If you've never seen it, let me tell you the basic of it. There's a guy named Edmund Dantes, and he is, the, uh, he is like the perfect guy. He's good looking. He's charismatic. He's got a very high character, and he's working his way up. He works on a ship, and at the beginning of the movie, he is giving control over the ship. He said, you're going to be the captain. And so he's so excited, and he runs down to his best friend. Edmund Dantes grew up poor. He grew up with nothing. He runs down to his best friend who he grew up with, who was rich, who was the son of a count. And he tells his friend, he said, look, I'm, I'm going to have, I'm going to have a, I'm going to be a captain. I'm going to have a life. And he tells his fiance, we can get married soon. I'm going to have the ability to support you financially. But his friend was jealous, as were others on the ship. And they conspire with the local law enforcement and say, we would like to see this man disappear because we don't want him. We, we don't want him to have all of these great things and us not have it. And so Edmond Dantes was thrown in a prison in a deep, dark hole of France somewhere miles and miles away for over a decade. His family and friends were told that he had been killed, he'd been executed for crimes, and he was left there. But he's able to escape, and I won't tell you the whole story because I don't do spoiler alerts. But when he comes back, he comes back with a lot of money, and he comes back to the people, and he goes and he faces his best friend, and guess what? His, his best friend doesn't even recognize him. And he goes to his old boss, and he talks to his old boss, and he even talks about Edmond Dantes, and he's like, yeah, old Edmond, I kind of remember him. And he goes to his fiance, the one person who wanted to spend the rest of her life with him, who had married his best friend now, and, and he goes up to her, and she doesn't recognize him either. See, the moral of that story, the moral of that story is that if you put enough distance and time between two people, they'll forget each other. And they won't recognize each other when they do meet. And isn't that a lot like the story of us and God? 
There was a time in human history where you and I, we walked through Eden with God. God walked here. He, he would show up like daily and just sit around and talk with humankind. And now we're at a place where Jesus Christ comes into the world and, and we don't recognize him? What changed? What thing could have put that distance between us and God? We define that word as, as sin. That the distance between us and God is sin. Now when we try to define sin, we always define it like we're trying to explain what it means to actually commit a sin or what it means to be a sinner. And I've heard things like, it's anything less than perfection. It's anything that you do that breaks with God's official plans. It's when you're disobedient to God. And at the heart of all sin, and these are all correct, by the way, at the heart of all sin is something inside of us that says, I don't want him to be God because if he's God, I can't be God. And that's what sin is. But last week, we looked at the way that John defined sin, and he defined it as darkness, which always blinds and confuses us. Now, that starts to make sense why we didn't recognize Christ. Because now we are blind and confused, and when he comes, we can't recognize him. And this week, what the Bible is showing us is that sin captures us and drags us far away from God. And it creates in us something very similar to Stockholm Syndrome, where at first we know that sin is bad, that it hurts us, but over time and through human history, we have come to love our sin. Guys, look at the news. We love sin. Our world loves sin. And let's not point at the people out there. Me and you have our sins that we love. We, we love sin, and it separates us from God and puts a distance between us and Him. And eventually, it caused humankind, it has caused me, it has caused you, and it has caused us to forget God. The Bible says that when Jesus came, they did not know or receive Him. Our second take-home truth is this, is that sin captures us, puts a distance between us and God, and causes us to forget Him. That's what sin does. And so in our minds, we need to redefine how we think of sin. Because how we've always thought of sin, how we've always taught sin, is we teach sin and define sin by actions. It's those things that you do or don't do. It's those things that, that we act a certain way in front of other Christians. And somewhere in that, we begin to define sins as big sins and small sins. Like, yeah, I can be a little prideful, but I hadn't murdered anybody today. We define sin differently, but if we define sin not by the actions that we call sin, what if we define sin by the nature? What, what if we define sin as something that blinds, confuses, captures, and distances and causes us to forget God? Now suddenly we view sin in a whole different light. There is no big, there is no small. All sin is the same. And when we begin to talk about sin, we talk about sin differently. Because we never talk about sin in a self-righteous manner where I don't sin and you do. Or, or you shouldn't do that. You need to get that straightened out. We, we don't talk about sin judgmentally. If these people don't get it straightened out, they're going straight to hell. We no longer define sin that way when we see people as a victim of sin. Because sin is a danger. We always look at it with a broken heart. Because we know the cost of the sin people are in is it's blinding and confusing them and capturing them and distancing them from God. And that's not something that we look at judgmentally. That's something that we look at them as a victim. And we see that in our society as people chase gods. Chasing the gods of money and fame and identity. I've done it. You have too. I probably did it this week. We, we always tend to say, oh, that's the rich people or that's the celebrities. No, no. You and I, we chase those things. Money, fame, comfort, luxury. But all of those will let you down. 
And the worst part of sin is this, is that what sin does when it captures us and it blinds and confuses us is it promises us it will make us happy. And it makes us so blind we can't recognize the one thing that will actually bring us peace and comfort and joy. I think sin is like an abusive relationship. Sin will promise you happiness and then bring you pain. Sin slaps us around and then turns around and says, but you know I love you. It's just one night. Sin demeans us and then says, oh, but I need you. Don't leave me. And we stay with sin and we stay in this abusive relationship with sin because we believe the lies. We believe that there is love and happiness. We believe in being needed. But yet we keep getting the actions and we keep going back for the lies. The worst part of any abusive relationship is being engaged in it. But the second worst part of it is an abusive relationship keeps you from having a healthy relationship. And, and that's what sin does. Is sin keeps us in this abusive relationship and it keeps us from this healthy relationship where there is a relationship that promises happiness and delivers it. There is a relationship that says, I love you, and there's actions to prove it. There's a relationship where Jesus Christ said, I'm willing to die for you, and he went and did it. And we choose our relationship with sin. We choose our relationship with sin over our relationship with Christ because we're blind and confused. We've been captured by our abuser and we've been captured by sin. But yet Jesus still came to our rescue and he gives us an option. You have that option to stay in that relationship with your sin, being distanced from God, not knowing him and refusing to receive him. But Jesus said there's another way and he gave his life for us to be, have another way. Let's continue reading what the Bible says, verses 11 through 13. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus Christ, when he came here, he came here to rescue us. And yet, it's shocking that he wasn't received. It's much like that story I started off with where the rescuers bust in and we say, we've got you away from sin. And they go, uh, actually, you're the bad guy. And that's exactly how Jesus entered this world. He came to rescue us. And we rejected him because we loved our darkness. And the Bible says that the world did not know him and the world did not receive him. Uh, that's an interesting world. What does it mean to receive somebody biblically? What does it mean to receive? Uh, if you define that, it define that, it just means to take what is being offered to you. It means to join yourself to something. But I think, I think of it like football. Guys, you can find God everywhere. You can find God in a football game. And so I was going to make this a really big thing about the Hogs beating Ole Miss, but that didn't work out. So we're, we're going to skip past that. Right? So in football, if you guys watch football, there's, there's this moment in the game where the defense of your team gets a stop, right? And they know that the, the next team is fixing to kick it off. And there's now no longer offense and defense. There is now the kicking team and the receiving team. And the whole point of this is the team that has the football is going to take that football and they're going to kick it as hard as they can. And that other team is going to take possession of it. They're going to receive. And I have never watched football. I've never watched football where the receiving team was like, yeah, you guys can have it. We really don't want to receive that. That's okay. No, that's fine. You know, every time, every time that football is offered, they trot out there and they have some guy that catches footballs really well and he's sitting back there and he's actively trying to receive this ball and take it to himself. And so when we talk about receiving, it's a lot like that. 
It's a lot like that. And I love this about a football game. This, this, this is just so in tune with the Christian life. Is once that team receives that football, once that team gets that football, it changes their entire identity. Their, their whole plan revolves around the reception of that football. They go from running around trying to knock people down. They trot different people out there and they go out and change their identity and now they begin working for a purpose. That is such a picture of what it means to be a Christian. Is there is this thing, this grace, this salvation, and it has been passed to you and it's in the air and all you have to do is put your hands out and take it to receive it. But when you receive it, be warned or understand when you receive it, it's going to change everything about the trajectory of your life. Your life will become about that salvation. Our next take-home truth is becoming a Christian means leaving sin to receive the Messiah. And as Jesus comes into the world, there's this opportunity. All you have to do is put out your hands and just receive it, and it's yours. But what the Bible says is that so many people did not. They rejected it. They're like that football team goes, no, you keep the football, I don't want it. But here's what's encouraging. And here's the reason you and I are sitting here today is that some did receive it. Some did receive it. And so I guess the question is, when we receive Jesus, when we receive God, when we take hold of him, what does it get you? And what the Bible says is those who did receive Jesus became the sons of God. I love the language that the Bible uses to describe your and my relationship when we're Christians with God. It uses the language of a father and of a child. And I love that relationship. And I'll be honest with you, having a child has changed my faith. It's grown me so much because now I finally understand what the Bible talks about when it talks about a a parent loving a child. And I understand for the first time with a deeper sense, God's love for me. And so what the Bible offers, if you will receive Jesus, it offers you adoption. It, It offers you an opportunity to become a child of God. A very dear friend of mine, um, she, she, several years ago, her and her husband tried and tried and tried, and, and they couldn't, couldn't have a child. And, and so they made, the, they made the decision to adopt a little girl from Guatemala. And, and listen, to, listen how this adoption went. They got on a plane, and they went to where the little girl was, and they went to the orphanage that she was in. This little girl had been abandoned by her mother, who was a housekeeper. And her mother had not even been able to write. She had signed the paperwork to release her daughter with a thumbprint. And this little girl was back there in a crib, and they went to go get her, to rescue her from this. This little girl at nine months old didn't cry anymore. Because in this orphanage, you can cry as much as you want to, and nobody's coming. When when they picked her up, and and they tried to love her, this little girl would just kind of sit there, just limp, just... She hadn't even learned how to hang on to somebody. You know, you pick up a baby and their first reaction is they're going to grab your shirt and wrap their legs around you. This little girl couldn't do that. She was just limp. She didn't even know how to receive love. And they went to where she was and they rescued her. And they made her their daughter. And what they said to her is, you are mine. We take responsibility for you. We are going to care for you and we are going to love you. That little girl turned 21 years old last week. And if she is not the most loved young lady in the state of Arkansas, I don't know who is. Man, they, they dote over her like nobody's business. But her life is a story of how she went from being neglected to showered with love. She was rescued and became a child. And when we talk about receiving Christ, that's the decision we're making, is we're making a choice to receive that adoption. 
We're, we're making a choice to go from being neglected to being showered with love. We, we're making a choice to allow the rescue to make us a child. Because Christ came into our world. He traveled to where we are so he could rescue us and say, you are mine and I take responsibility for you. And you may be wondering, you may be wondering about what it means to be his child. And how do I make that choice to receive this adoption? And one of my favorite stories that I love is, is Lee Strobel. Some of you guys have heard of Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was a devout atheist. He hated everything related to God. He hated Christianity. He hated church. He taught against it. He, he tried to pull people away from God in every way that he could. And the worst thing that could ever happen to him happened one day. His wife came home and she had become a Christian. And he was so mad because she's like, hey, honey, I'm praying for you. No, he was so mad. And so he made a decision. He was an investigative journalist. He said, I'm going to prove. I'm going to prove. I'm going to write a paper that proves God does not exist. And he went out and he began to interview scholars. And he tried to prove that the Bible wasn't real. And all he could find was evidence that the Bible is real. And he went out and tried to prove that Jesus never existed. And every historian that he talked to, Christian and non-Christian, said, no, Jesus existed. He tried to prove that Christ was not resurrected from the grave. And all he could find was evidence that proved that he was. And at the end of this journey of trying to disprove God and trying to prove that God didn't exist, he came to a conclusion, a shocking, sudden conclusion. It's all real. I was wrong. And you know the verse that transformed his life was this verse. This verse right here, number 12. Let me read it to you again. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Lee Strobel is now a mega force for God in this world. And he'll tell you that what he saw in this verse was an equation to becoming a child of God. He said it's very simple. If I will believe and I will actively receive, I become a child of God. And he had come to a point where he believed it was true, but at that point, he had not come to a place, Liv, if you want to come up here, he had not come to a place where he had made the decision to receive. And so he actively approached God, and he said, God, this, this salvation that you're throwing to me, this grace that you've made free to me, I choose to receive it. I choose to follow you. I choose for this to be the center point and the focus of my life. I put my faith in you, and I repent of my sins. And maybe you're here this morning and, and you needed to hear this because undoubtedly there's somebody in here that you know in your heart what you're hearing God say to you is, yeah, you've believed, you know this stuff is true and you've been at church, but you've never received it. And if that's you, today is your day to come to God. Today is your day to receive it. It's just as simple as saying, God, I'm taking it. I, I'm actively receiving it. God, I'll have it. And maybe for the rest of us, maybe there's something that you've been fighting off and you hear God saying it so clearly to you. You hear God saying, hey, you're a Christian, but you never made the decision to be baptized. You hear God say, you've been disobedient for too long, but your life is to revolve around me. In any case, in either case, this is our response time, and my challenge to all of us is to never leave here different. Don't leave here neglecting to take care of what God is calling you to do. This is a response time. You guys come up here and pray. I'll pray with you. I'll counsel you through anything. But let's get it taken care of with God today. Please stand.